The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. Today, listeners, uh, you might be surprised. I know you'll be inspired. And I also know that you will be touched by today's episode. My guest is Maya Williams, and I met her when I was hosting the storytelling and spirituality workshop at St. Joseph's College of Maine in outside of Portland, Maine in Standish. And we spent the day together talking about our definitions of spirituality and which stories could demonstrate those definitions so that we wouldn't have to tell people we were spiritual beings. And so that we could more clearly understand our definition, our personal experience with spirituality so that we wouldn't, well, wouldn't is a strong word, so that we would be less likely to project that version of spirituality onto others. And at the end of the day, Maya gave me a hug that I felt down to my toes. It was one of those hugs that you just know the person's heart, even if you have no other context for their lived experience. And we got in touch following the workshop. I had looked up her book that she told me she had published and bought it. And then found out when I bought the book that she was the poet laureate of Portland, Maine. (laughs) And I suddenly had this imposter syndrome moment of, Oh my gosh, (laughs) I had no idea this person was in my workshop. Now I'm wondering, oh my gosh, what am I going to teach her? (laughs) So it was one of those moments that I was so grateful that I am a learner and that I was presenting this workshop in the context of what will I take from it as well and not what can I exclusively give, but what will I receive in this workshop as well? Um, I've never been more grateful for that part of my learning capacity. So listeners, let's just jump right in. Maya, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Your workshop was incredible. And and I really appreciate your kind words about you learning, you, uh, you learning from me as much as, and also like, it's because I'm learning a lot from you. Um, and I have learned a lot from you from that workshop. So I just really appreciate your time. Well, um, let's just, let's get started. You know, from um, other episodes that I love to ask my guests to share something about themselves that most people don't know. And um, it's so funny because a lot of people say, well, I'm kind of an open book. And then they say something that is not open book-ish. So I have zero doubts that you would say, uh, I'm an open book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I guess like, and I, and I tried to think, think about this before we met up today too. Uh, but I think, uh, the first, like what most people would not know about me is that I learned how to create this sound from my throat when I was like 10 or 11 years old. 
Uh, that's 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 commonplace for for a lot for a lot of folks but like at the but at the time i thought it was the coolest thing in the world um and it's and it sounds like and, and like and it turns out it's that's that's not that or original uh but but it is but within the context of this conversation like it's 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 fun that like that like now people will be like oh maya can do that <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny I love it. And what was the, the, I mean, was it something you heard somebody else do and that made you even try it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, a, ch- a childhood friend was, uh, was, show- was showing me and my sisters how to, how to do it. And, and then we, and then as soon as we learned how to do it, we just kept doing it around the house uh, where my mom and like my grandma and our aunts had to be like, y'all stop please this is a lot (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny yes that is unexpected (laughs) that reminds me of uh when i was a kid and um our families would always do weird uh shapes with our tongues and apparently it's a genetic thing whether you can curl up your tongue oh yeah like in a circle or we try to turn it completely upside down you know see how far upside down we could get it and everyone in our family would be like, can you do that? And <laughs> it's so weird. Why do we do those things? Because <laughs> they were fun at the time. <laughs> I know. Can you curl your tongue? Does it matter? <laughs> and now it's like lifting of the eyebrows is always a thing because I can lift one eyebrow pretty significantly. And sometimes I can do the other one. But I remember oh, when cool. that's the thing my sister says, oh, uh, Sydney can lift both eyebrows. That's her daughter. <laughs> Like, well, and we all make jokes about it and we try it. And it's so funny the way we do these weird things with our faces. But I wonder how that connects us. Like, why is that a thing? <laughs> is that kind of weird? I mean, isn't it weird? Yeah. Like, it's, I find it, I find it so fascinating because of how it's, it's a moment of play. Right. And, and like, and yeah, again, these these uh, these acts are not are not original, but we're still fascinated by it. We're still going like, oh, that's cool, and and it's one of those few moments of play and going like, oh, me too, me too. Um, and especially like before we lose that sense of play as we get older. Like, I haven't thought about it like that, and and maybe it's part of what keeps us curious about mm-hmm. what we can do, what we can't do. I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah. Huh. Wow, that's something to to consider. I don't know why. I guess because we always wonder where we've lost our sense of play and curiosity. And and maybe that's something that can bring it back in our families when we ask those questions. Can you curl your tongue? It's a genetic thing of whether you can do that. And can you make that weird sound that comes out of the back of your throat? I thought for sure you were going to say like, you learn that you could harmonize with yourself like the Tuvan throat singers when you said the sound from the I'm like, no way. <laughs> or the didgeridoo players that can do the cyclical breathing where it comes in the nose and out the mouth. I was going to be really, really impressed, Maya. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, that's so interesting. And especially because now that you're saying this, you and your sisters, how many siblings do you have? 
I have two sisters and a brother, and I am the oldest. I'm the oldest sibling. Oh, wow. So four of you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that plays a role in your sense of responsibility? And Oh, 100%. (laughs) Are you the responsible one? What was that? Are you the responsible one of your siblings? Yes. Ah, that's funny. And are how old is your youngest sibling now? Oh goodness, he just turned twenty four a few days ago. Oh, so he's just finally getting his brain back. <laughs> Isn't that great? When they finally get their brain back, <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, like my younger son is twenty two, and. He got his brain back much earlier than my older son. Mm. But I remember when they were, uh, I think they were 12 and 14. And this is right before everything came out about Bill Cosby. But there was a, that bit that he did on teenagers that they're, they're brain damaged. You, you must mm-hmm. be brain damaged, right? And he makes this whole bit about how uh, he says to his kid, what were you thinking? And there's the answer. I don't know. It's a really funny bit. And we showed both of our boys that Bill Cosby bit. And it wasn't until a little while longer that I stopped watching any of those YouTube videos, unfortunately. But I remember then reading an article about how our brains actually slough off brain cells in the frontal cortex at about 12 or 13. And that continues until up 24. Mm. And so technically, if you're looking at somebody's brain in those age ranges, they are actually brain damaged because they're, mm. they've sloughed off these brain cells from the frontal cortex, which is the part that's responsible for our understanding of consequences. Mm. This is why it's great to um, get these 18-year-olds into the military. Huh. Because they'll do things without understanding the consequences. <laughs> Oh, that's hard. So they're at the perfect age for doing that and the, yeah. at the worst possible age for doing that, right? Yeah. So, um, but we read this when, yeah, so we we read this when the boys were little, with preteen and, pre- and teenager. My husband sent the article to all four of us to read. And I remember sitting at the dining room table and saying, okay, you guys, this isn't an excuse, but it is something to know. Yeah. So that when you're thinking about doing something, Maybe you ask, what are the consequences? What are the risks? When you think about something, if you're looking around to see if an adult is around, that means you know somewhere in your conscious being that is probably not a good idea. (laughs) If you're trying to figure out whether somebody's going to see you doing it. Oh, that should be your clue. Hmm. It was, it's fascinating. So that's why I said that about your brother. Like, oh, okay. 24, 25 is when they start to rebuild those neural pathways. I don't know. Who knew, right? <laughs> I still wonder about my own brain sometimes. So I'm way past that age. <laughs> so tell me, let's let's um bring this around to the the spirituality workshop that we did together because when I asked you to be on my podcast, you said that that's something you would really like to talk about on it. So yeah. for our listeners, um 
Maya has two books out and there will be links to purchase those books in the blog post associated with the podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. But the books are called Judas and Suicide. And the second one that's just out is Refused a Second Date, which has a bit more humor than the first one. Yes. Um, <laughs> they're, they're both just full of inspiring and sometimes very dark and sad and hard things to read. The kind of hard that everyone needs to be exposed to. Thank you. But yes, thank you. Um, so what were you thinking about when, when, when you said that that's something you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about it because it's such an integral part of my life. Um, it's not something that I can separate from my creative life or separate from any parts of in, entities of my identity. Um, and so it's a topic that I tend to get the most excited about. It's a topic that's in bo both of my books. It tends to be more so in Judas and Suicide than Refused a Second Date, but it is a little bit in Refused a Second Date. So it's, I still wanted to talk about it. Oh, that makes sense. And when you think about your current spirituality or your current spiritual practices, what do you think happened that enlightened you to where you are now. So the reason I ask that that pivotal moment or a pivotal experience that kind of shifted you into where you are spiritually now, I think about how I was spiritual at home, raised in a very Jewish household and that religious spirituality, even though I never really felt spiritual at the synagogue, and then how I brought it back after having kids um, to a much more spiritual practice of those rituals without a synagogue at all. And I think about sitting in my car, driving to work and having this moment, um, having this, when I was pregnant with Jacob and he was moving around a lot and I, he'd get hiccups every morning and wake me up in utero. And I remember suddenly having that sense of greater being, right? That I couldn't imagine growing this living, breathing being without there being something greater than me out there. Mm. It's definitely very spiritual connection. So that was, I would say that that moment sitting in the car, like I remember it having that sense of, wow, there's a living being in here that I'm growing and being so puzzled and overwhelmed and connected. And then I remember some, other moments that we can talk about later that made me feel so spiritual. So mm -hmm. can you share a couple of those that kind of brought you to where you are now? So I consider myself both spiritual and, and, and religious. I define my spirituality as my, as my connection to God. And I define religion as like, as like my, my got my list of guidelines when it, when it comes to, when it comes to God. Um, but as far as a pivotal moment, as far as what, what what made me come to where I am now in my in my spirituality and also it's like I feel like it's so nonlinear it's always gonna right. go up and down inside and, si and sideways like I like I, I feel like if you haven't gone through any forms of, of crisis of faith it's, it's like huh tell me what that's like um but uh my friend uh who i refer to in in refuse a second date uh who was my who was my first kiss in the sixth grade 
Um, and he, uh, he and I were friends for a very, for a very long time and may try, uh, try to maintain touch throughout the years. Um, he had died by suicide, uh, during my sophomore year in college and, uh, and what awakened for me spiritually during that time was like this, this idea around what is the point of grieving alone when God created so many people around you for a reason? What is the point of you of you li literally is isolating your yourself in the same way your your friend your friend did when it when like when you have so many resources out there for you when you have so many ways to be able to sit with joy in a natural way that doesn't have to feel forced because of people around you and granted like there is a there's a lot to critique about religious upbringing where where they're like oh well talk talk to god so you don't have to talk to me but when when we talk more about spirit spirit spiritual guidance it's like we're like we're not supposed to be going through any of this alone god did not intend for us to be alone um and that and that being in in a, an awakening and i don't want to frame it in a way where it's like where it's like, oh, trauma is the reason why my my spirituality is like is like this Be uh, because that's not the that's not that's not the narrative I want to perpetuate, especially because there have been a lot of people who have used who have used that as a way to just just extend more harm. Uh, but this but this is to say it was it was pivotal for me to continue to expand what uh, what my support system looks like and re recognize that there are things far beyond my my control and things far beyond me and the entity of my body and my soul and it's just mm -hmm. like ah, this, i keep doing a hand gesture that's like throwing some, something because it's like it's just outside of my being like like oh you take care of this i'm, I'm not holding i'm not holding that yeah oh my gosh i love that when when you think about Oh my gosh, you, you said so much in there that I would like to kind of understand more. Yeah. The the first thing that popped into my head was when you said um I wasn't meant to isolate and that was part of knowing that that was part of the what your friend did was isolate rather than mm -hmm. share and be in community. When you realized that, what was who was your community? What what did you do to reduce yeah. that potential? Because I know once we feel that isolation, it's harder and harder to reach out after we've gone into that that curled up ball, yeah, in a in cocoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the community that I was able to reach out to at the time was 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 for one thing, finally returning to therapy after after like such a long hiatus after as since, since middle school um and like and just finally coming back to it um and being able to engage with people in community or organizing circles that i was involved in in college and being involved in ca uh, campus ministry in college and and as as an adult i look back on on certain aspects of of my time in campus ministry that I still very much critique, especially when it comes to uh, their their policy around queer and trans people and and leadership and that playing and playing playing a role into why I was not out at the time and at the same time 
like uh that was the first community to tell to tell me that i didn't have to grieve by myself so that's and that's powerful right like i think that's why a lot of people end up in communities that don't necessarily fit them mm -hmm. if they're feeling like at least there's this mm -hmm. right instead of continuing to look for a community that will fit you 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 stop and you stay in that i'm going to put air quotes up safe place mm -hmm. because they're welcoming you into a community a community any mm -hmm. community at that point yeah. is going to serve some purpose right yeah and i and i and also like that ended up pushing me to find more more communities that that to use your word fit um and like being and also be uh being able to engage in spaces where i'm able to remind myself like oh i don't have to attend a house of worship that does not love me um <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean especially if you feel so strongly about god being a loving being mm -hmm. oh my gosh so when you think about um that experience of being welcomed into community the community you needed at that time clearly this was something that was uh, a healing part of your journey, even if it wasn't the right, uh, it wasn't a complete healing, but it was the beginning of it. What's the image that pops into your head? Are you at a church or are you at a campus event? What's the image when you think of community in that, in that time in your life? Yeah, I think, I think about a camp campus event. think thinking about uh time, times in my dorm with people that I know think think about things like that think I think about the partner that that I had at the time who again as as a, as an adult it's like it's like he and I caused each other so much harm um and at the and at the same time I can look back on that and be grateful for the times where he was like hey I'm here if you need anything you're in so much pain I love you go to therapy <laughs> yeah so um, you mentioned being in the dorms and having that community. Is there a, a specific time that pops into your head, like a, a conversation you had? And I'm I'm digging here because yeah, yeah. what I love to do is find a particular moment in time that can represent that that era in your life, mm -hmm. so that yeah. you don't have to tell the full. You know, I started school there, and this is what I was doing. These were my friends, and going through that linear description, but being able to kind of pick out a time and and our you know our memories are fallible. Our memories are not accurate. And yet, sometimes when we tell a story like that, it ends up being kind of a conglomeration of different moments in time, but our brain just puts it together into one story. Mm -hmm. Do you have one like that that is popping into your head? Yeah, I think of this time where like I was just crying around around people in a in a small group uh, related to my campus ministry and I was and I was saying the phrase and I know I know God doesn't give you any more than you can handle and then someone's hu hugging me and she and she says the phrase that is bullshit. It was like in that moment you're you woke up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see like, it in your face. I wish our listeners could see like, that expression like, on your face. Like, <laughs> whoa. I'm imagining you saying in your head, whoa, thank you. Yeah. You're right. 
it's it's bullshit. Why do people say that? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a powerful moment. A- anything does any other thing from that era of your life pop into your head? Like maybe the time when you realized maybe this isn't for me? Um like uh cuz I know I mentioned this a little bit earlier but I'm going to but I'm going to say it again anyway. Um just uh talking to talking to my ther- therapist uh when I was when I first moved to Maine and I was still trying to navigate like what what did it mean for me to be uh, to be in Christian com- community in a predominantly not non-religious er- area and like um and and I remember tell- telling my therapist like oh well you know I I know that not every space is perfect right so I so I just need to find the the first thing that's 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 available to me and that uh and then and then my therapist tells me like you do not have to go to a house of worship that does not love you that was your therapist that said that yeah (sighs) that's brilliant that's brilliant so basically the therapist is giving you permission to keep looking yeah and not just giving you permission but encouraging you Part of what I love about that is that so many times I have talked to people who needed therapy, went to one or two counselors, didn't get anything out of it, and then just stopped rather than (laughs) continuing to look for one that would work for them. And it's kind of like, well, I went to this doctor that couldn't help me for my headaches. So I just stopped looking for a doctor. Like, Mm. no, that's not what would happen. You don't just stop trying to find out what's causing these headaches just because one doctor couldn't find the answer for you. Yeah. It like it especially make uh makes it makes me it makes me feel upset when uh, someone says something like, "Oh, I tried going to a therapist, but I felt worse afterwards, so I stopped going." And it's like but that's that's part that's part of the work. That's part of the work. I can understand like not <laughs> wanting to continue with a therapist for like for for like if they said something bigoted or they weren't doing their jobs right but like but they're doing their job and you feel worse afterwards it's like you need to give it more time (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah I had a client like that coaching is the same way you know to stop going to coaching because somebody made you feel bad about yourself like and it's not the person who's making you feel bad it's you who feels bad because you realize that you might have done something that hurt somebody else or that you're hurting yourself. And I remember having a coaching client that he said, well, you just tell it like it is, don't you? <laughs> and I said, well, if you want somebody who's going to, you know, just tell you you're right all the time, then you need to work with a different coach. Right. You you were wrong. This wasn't okay. Right. That just brought up so much in my head. You could tell uh, now my brain is throwing something into the distance, like, well, that's so much bigger than me right now. (laughs) But I I also understand that the desire to stop when something is painful. Mm -hmm. So um, I was, I had a conversation with a woman that I was kind of mentoring informally. And I remember this moment where she told me that um, our last conversation really was not good for her and that I had hurt her by being contradictory. It Mm. felt like she, I was just contradicting everything she said and felt like to her that I was 
kind of throwing in her face the beautiful life I lead. And she was alone. And here I was talking about my husband and she was sad. And I was talking about how happy I was. And it was a really, it was a pretty intense email. And of course, my first reaction was to be defensive. Like in my, in my brain, the first thing I thought was, well, I was just trying to help and you just didn't get it. And this is about you. It's not about me. And all the stuff that is totally natural to come into a person's head when they're faced with a mirror. And that's what she was doing. She was putting up a mirror. And in some ways, there's some things that I could say, okay, that really wasn't about me. And, but the other side of that was my goal wasn't to hurt her. Mm -hmm. And whatever my intention was, doesn't matter if that was her perception. And I remember after the initial response of feeling defensive of going back into myself and thinking, okay, I'm defensive because there's some aspect of that that is real and that I need to face. And I ended up calling her and I don't, I don't remember if she answered, but I remember saying, thank you. And I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. Thank you for sharing this with me because I realized that many times when I've spent time with my mother, I know we all do this, but I, I regress. Yeah, I, I spend more than a few days with my mother and suddenly I get very contradictory. You know, my mom would say the sky is blue. I'll say it's green, right? It's just like that weird relationship I have with her. And after I've spent time with her, I do that to other people. Mm-hmm. And her, my this woman that I was informally mentoring called me on it. And it changed everything in, in how I interact with people, how I coach. I'm so much more conscious of that now. So I get it. It's hard when somebody gets that mirror put up in front of them. And it's much easier to just say, wow, that hurts. I'm going away. Mm-hmm. Let's turn this back. Yeah, deep breath. <laughs> deep breath, yeah. deep breath. <laughs> let's turn this back. So when you, uh, let's go back into this whole, I, I'm really loving the story of your spiritual journeys. And I'm calling them journeys because as you said, that it's not a linear thing and sometimes <laughs> it tanks <laughs> and then something happens and brings us back, right? Do you have a, a story example of a time when it kind of tanked and came back to you? When it, ooh, when it tanked and came back to me? Yeah. Maybe in a different form. <laughs> um, I was dating some someone at the time, and then it had stopped ab- abruptly. Um, and I was calling a friend about it who had uh, who had lived states away. Um, and I was, and then at one point, I think I said, I said some, I said something like. And I know that he that he has a different set of, of spiritual va- values, and then and then my friend interjects and goes like, "Then why do you want that? <laughs> why would you want a person <laughs> like that in your life? Then if you if like <laughs> if you know that, right? <laughs> like in it. <laughs> so shout out to my friend who uh, who wasn't all like, oh yeah, no, I understand. He was he was just like, why would you want that? <laughs> I love that. Abrupt, straight to the point. That was another, whoa, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) What was I thinking? 
<laughs> apparently oh the most impactful friends of my life have been the friends who tell who tell me like it is because that's that's how I, I get it <laughs> well I, I get that because subtlety is totally lost on me <laughs> I just, it goes right over my head I I need that so you must need that too <sighs> I think we attract those people into our lives when we need them yeah absolutely like and I and I now have follow-up questions in my mind too about about like how much how much of this has to do with neuro neurodivergence as far as far as like as far as like you can't talk around things with with me so much it's like you need you need to bring it to here like I you know it could be it could be neurodivergence I've I've seen that for sure I've experienced a lot of that in in the people in my life and I think most of us when we are in that place need a more direct person yeah. that we trust I mean it can't just be somebody coming out of well, although sometimes it is a stranger total stranger that wakes us up with a a virtual slap right like a a brick to the head um but i think most of the time when we are in there we need somebody to be direct like that right mm -hmm. yeah i think about um when we're in a, a a relationship that is really not good for us we're not going to see it and nobody close to us can say oh he's no good for you right mm -hmm. we're going to dig in our heels even more especially especially me like <laughs> i'm pretty yeah, I'm, I can be like that. I'm an Aries. I'm like I know I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing me. You, you can't get in my way. But then sometimes it's the stranger that can be the one, right? When was when have you been that person? I know you have. I have no <laughs> doubt that you have been that person to somebody, either a stranger or to somebody you love. Like, uh-uh, you're wrong. <laughs> Don't do that. What are you thinking? <laughs> I. <laughs> I have been like this. <laughs> I just need to think of a moment when. <laughs> oh, I love God. your laugh. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're making me smile. Okay. I always have these moments in time in my head that just pop. It was, uh, and I, I have this analogy or metaphor, I guess. When I was in college in Australia, I took a class called uh, Native Fictions. It was the Australian literature course I took. And there was a book that there's a woman that describes her memories as it's like a ball in her head that spins and a spotlight. And when something triggers a memory, it stops the ball still. Mm. The spotlight hits the spot on the ball. And that's like, oh, and then she has this vision of a, of whatever the memory was. And I think about that. And that was, gosh, I was, this was 1989. Oh, wow. <laughs> so clearly that book had an impact. But anyway, what's, what is your spotlight looking at right now? <laughs> I, I have, I have a memory. Um, I was, I was working with, uh, with a student on, on a, on a, uh, so there, so there's an organization called the called the Telling Room. They work with y young people to write pieces for published anthologies or even for their own uh, published books. And I'm working with the student on their poetry book, and they say, "I don't like this 
poem that that I'm that I'm working on doesn't make it doesn't make me feel good. And then I and then I said, well, of course it doesn't make you feel good. You're not in it. Like we, if you write about yourself, you'd like it more. Um, and then one of the instructors had overheard me as they were walking by, and they say out loud. Ah! <laughs> 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 um and, <laughs> and, and and the student and I look look uh look look at them and they and they were like I I didn't need to hear that about my own writing Maya how dare you and like <laughs> <laughs> truth they were both shocked by your truth and in the in the acknowledgments of the because because they do they do have their book out now um the student put in their acknowledgments like thank you for work working with me even when I was stubborn, thank you. And I'm just like, yay. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful acknowledgement. Well, when you think about it, there so many people just give up when they're faced with somebody who's stubborn or who is um, too needy or, you know, they have all of those, all that baggage. And a lot of people give up with people like that. They're, they just don't, they decide it's not worth whatever energy they're putting in or whatever. And you didn't. You're like, I, I know there's more in here and I'm not giving up. And that student saw that, experienced that in you. I, I, to me, what that says is that student will forever be more self-reflective because they know that when somebody gives them that kind of guidance, it's because they care. Mm -hmm. And when you know it's coming from a place of care, it makes you take the guidance differently. I think about that woman that I talked about, the informal mentoring. I knew she told me that because A, I hurt her in some way, and B, she cared enough about me to tell me that. She yeah. could have just ghosted me and we'd never see each other, hear from each other again, but she didn't. Mm -hmm. She felt like I needed to hear that. And she was right, as painful as it was. Mm -hmm. Man, that was painful. <laughs> what a gift. What a gift. <gasps> exactly. That painful, those painful moments, even when they're coming from somebody who doesn't love you, can be such a gift, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I I think a lot about spite as a motivator. I really do. Okay. So who's when you think of spite as a motivator, what's the story that pops into your head? I'm I'm a believer in right in righteous spite. Um I'm I'm a huge believer in that, um, and I know that in college, um, I I had I I spoke to a hotline um, after experiencing harm from from the from the same person I mentioned earlier uh, who, who I was dating at the time, and the hotline worker uh, at one point says, "Well, maybe you two shouldn't have been in the same bed," and I'm like, oh, "Okay, um, huh?" and uh, and then years later, I applied to a job at the Maine Transgender Network to be their uh, se uh, sexual assault and domestic violence uh, program coordinator. Um, and I and and I and I had mentioned like I'm just I'm just letting you know that I'm in this job out of spite. Um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I would never do that to anybody, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, I, I that's that's a good one. There are so many times that I did stuff. I was successful because I was spiting somebody. Like in 
in high school when one of my teachers told me that I I wouldn't pass the English comp AP test. He was mm-hmm. like, you're just, it's, you're not gonna. And I was like, oh yeah, you watch me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course I did. Barely. Exactly. <laughs> Barely. No, wow. but you got, you got to have, you got to have that. You got to have that spite. Yeah, I, it. it works. Yeah. My, my friend Valerie Gordon wrote a book, uh, Fire Your Narrator. And it's nice. all about that inner dialogue. And she, there's at one point, I don't think it's in that book, but um, she, she wrote about the unlikelies. And these are the things that you wouldn't think would motivate you, but do. And that's one of them. <laughs> and I think, nice. you know, as long as you're using it to your advantage and, and it's yeah. positive, there's nothing wrong with righteous spite. That's what you called it. Yeah, that's what I call it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have more? Like, are there any teachers in your past? Because I know when I was um, friends with these teenagers, I was a, a mom of young boys and these teenagers would come to my house all the time. And these three girls and one of them, Britt, would she said, yeah, my teacher said I would never graduate, that I'd be pregnant at 17 or whatever. And I said, so you're going to let him win? You're going to let him be right? Are you kidding me? And I was like pushing her to be spiteful, to graduate from high school without getting pregnant, you know, graduate from high school, maybe even think about what's going to happen next. I said, I don't know if you want college or what, but you got to show him that he's wrong. Mm. You spite the heck out of that guy. And then you go back to the high school and show him your diploma, right? You go back to that mm-hmm. teacher and go, see, eh, eh, you know, flip him off, yeah. whatever you need to do. But because, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I like to use the use the phrase right, righteous spite to, to describe that. And usually that's just to like to, just to just just so that folks are not thinking of like, of of like oh oh you just being spiteful just just because you can or 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 like oh is the spite coming from coming from an unnecessary place and it's like no nah, it's coming from a very necessary place um and like another phrase that I that I tend to say say a lot and I've written a lot about is has been like has has been like like it makes in a world where people want me dead and want a lot of loved ones of mine dead it's like what a nice middle finger what a nice day to make them so mad to still be alive anyway it's like like i've I've heard friends of mine say things like i'm just alive out of spite (laughs) whatever it takes honey whatever it takes to keep you on this planet with me in good company (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's such a common Jewish practice, too. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, they tried to kill us all. They failed. Let's eat. That's what they say <laughs> most of the Jewish holidays are about. <laughs> yeah, and this year, Hanukkah will definitely be especially meaningful to all Jews. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Oh, my gosh, I love mm-hmm. that. Okay, so let's, Um, I want to make sure that we hear the stories that you feel compelled to share about your spirituality. So when you thought about being on the show, wanting to share some aspect of your spirituality as a, as a gift to listeners and also to express it yourself for your own internal messages, what, 
tell me what you're thinking about. I'm thinking a lot about how poetry has been surrounding my life for a very long time and how it's been a spiritual pulse in my life for a very long time. Um, and yeah, I can't separate my spirituality from poetry or, or poetry from, from spirituality there. So they've become so intertwined. That's just, that just is what it is. And like, and it, and it, re- and it reminds me of like, of like how there is so much pain and there's going to continue to be pain because being alive means having to live with pain. Um, and my journey with, with my me- mental health is going to continue to be this wishy-washy rela- relationship with, with pain, especially as it integrates with my, with my physical health too. Uh, I, I was diagnosed with endometriosis a couple of months ago and, and like, so witnessing how that has been combined with my, with my mental health has been a lot. Um, and, and at, and at the same time, it just feels really good to know that things beyond me are the reasons why there's this joy in in po- in poetry and how like there there's uh, the more nuanced joy and the joy that uh that reminds us of like how we got to that joy is very is very is very important to me and and very and very relevant when it comes to the the honesty that poetry can provide and the honesty that the spiritual connection can provide regardless of of of, of spiritual irreligious religious not religious worldview and um and how much love come comes comes from that and my love for people comes from that and and uh, wanting to like because i don't want this to become a thing where where it's like oh god's using your trauma for good and i'm like no god did not want me to suffer um so no we're not saying that um but i do want my work to be of service to others because it's certainly of service to, to myself um and wanting wanting to provide that connection and wanting folks to feel that love and feel held um and reminisce on their own love stories and reminisce on their own healing journeys that are all zigzaggy and if you have follow-up questions about that i'm more than happy to hear them if there's anything yeah. i need to expand on with that because i know when- that i'm just talking but it feels good to just be talking it sounds good to just hear you talking (laughs) i'm curious about your exposure to poetry is this something that came from your parents or a teacher did you find it on your own this came from just writing a lot as a kid like writing stories and like uh, having a bunch of crayons and then like stapling computer paper together for like these like look i made a book um and it wasn't until the age of eight where i started writing poems um and uh, and i and i typically tell people that like um i started performing spoken word between late high school early college and was competing a lot in collegiate slams throughout all four years of college um and competed a little bit after moving to the New England area um and then I stopped in like 2018 but I but I started publishing more poems since 2018 I was into poetry as a as a kid and then in AP English uh we had to create a poetry notebook and have the poem and then have our 
description underneath it. Why, what was it about the poem? And we had a, different kinds of poems that we had to include, you know, different uh, structures of poems. And I just found that notebook in a closet a little while ago. What and, stood out? Uh, Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy stood out and a couple of Shakespeare, a sonnet, and then a, a piece from one of his tragedies. And I guess what stood out to me was that um, the poems continue to resonate. And some of them were like, wow, I wonder what I saw in that. Because mm. I'm looking at it going, that doesn't, I don't understand that at all. Why, why did that resonate? Was I just grabbing something because I was running late? Like, was, mm. what was that about? So I'm curious about um, any particular poets that captured your attention younger, maybe some that are continuing to capture your attention now. When I was younger, uh, my Maya Angelou was was a great influence. Um, very, very very honored to share her name. Uh, as as I as I get older, um, a, a lot of the poets that tend to resonate with me are are Anis Mojgani. Uh, he's currently the statewide poet laureate of the of Oregon. Um, Kava Akbar. Um, he he's he's so brilliant um, and so smart um, with uh, with his poetry um, and how he writes about spirituality and and recovery um, as as someone who um, who was brought up as as Muslim. Uh, really love um wanda coleman's work Andrea phillips is an incredible poet and visual artist also i love a lot of my friends work um i love uh my best friend mia stewart willis's poetry they write a lot about blackness transness and language and archaeology in a way that i find really fascinating Mm. um Wow. For our listeners, um, we will have these names in a list on that blog post associated with the podcast. Again, elkinsconsulting.com. So keep an eye out for that so that you can click and look into these artists, these poets. I'm I'm eager to dive in myself. And um, one last follow-up, if that's okay. Please, yeah. When you think about your future as a poet, what I, you've already said to some extent that you want to be in service of other people's healing of other people's expression. What do you get most um, joy out of when you think about your future as a poet? Yet the most joy out of like having more opportunities to hear other people's po- poetry and work. I really love facilitating workshops where, where it's like, okay, first I'm sharing my poems. I'll answer a bunch of questions you have about the book publishing, whatever. Um, but then the, the entire rest of the time is just hearing from other people and hearing what's resonated with them from the beginning and what's and what's inspiring them and what's surprising them and just having more opportunities to hear more people share and hearing how they implement their poems in different ways because like i i 
Is there, uh, there's a lot of discourse around like, like, oh, poetry is not, not, act, not activism. And, and it's like, uh, and it's like, you know what? I agree with that. Po- uh, poetry is not legislative writing. Poetry is not, um, is not or- organizing per se. And at the same time, poetry is a pulse in activism. Poetry is the pulse that is able to like inspire so many people to do the work that you want us to do. And like, Po- poetry is one of the most requested art forms and yet we're paid the least um so uh so so this idea around that around poetry has nothing to do with activism is a lie um especially when there when there are poets who are activists and are doing quote the work end quote and and i'm ju- and i'm just looking forward to seeing more ways of how how of how people around me are doing their own work, whether that's activism work or whether it's their own healing work or whether it's another cre- creative work that's creating a whole other pulse of things. I did not expect that. And I love that you brought that up because I have always thought of poetry as a, as a pulse of activism because, I mean, my Angela, how can you not think of her as an activist Mm -hmm. through her poetry. Her words are quoted Mm -hmm. all the time, especially among people who are trying to push the needle toward humanity and love. Yeah. Poetry's read at protests all the time. Exactly. Oh, well, I never thought of it as not part of it. So it's interesting that as a poet, that's been your experience. I, I, I mean, it's no different from music when it comes to activism, right? How, Mm. All the songs of the 70s and the peace songs, right, that were written as activist peace songs. I don't know. I, I like your description of it as a pulse of activism. Thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Foundational. Maya, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It has thank been such a pleasure. Me. Listeners, now it's your turn. I'm curious to know if you have been interested in poetry? Have you ever found it interesting or intriguing or inspiring? And if you haven't, why did you stop looking for poetry that might actually inspire you? I challenge you to find a poem in the next two days that really resonates, a poem that you can get into dive into, maybe find some of your own healing in it. It could be from one of Maya Williams' books. It could be searching for poems about, and then put a keyword in there. Find your poem that can be your anthem for a little while. And when that gets tired, find another one to be an anthem for a little while, just as you would song lyrics or a song. And don't forget to purchase a book of poetry from some small local bookstore to support your local poet. Thank you for listening to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.